welcome to podcast number 15 for Thanks for Your Service. I'm David Hall. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net. You can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. This is our 15th podcast and it's being published on the eve of the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. At the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, 100 years ago, the guns fell silent. From an Australian perspective, in the four years of the war, some 330,000 Australians had served overseas. Some 60,000 never made it home and the social effects in Australia lasted for years. For this podcast, we are joined by Roland Perry. Roland is the author of over 30 books and six on World War I and World War II history. In 2011, he was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for services to literature as an author. In 2004, he published a book titled Monash, The Outsider Who Won a War. He joins us from Melbourne. Roland, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, David. We're just recording this just days before the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. As I said, you're an author of over 30 books with the six bestsellers on World War One and World War Two. Out of those books, can you give us an overview of the, of the firstly of the military books that you've written? Yes, well, I've done World War One and Two, and I've uh, concentrated on the impact that Monash had on the Western Front with two books, Monash, the biography on him, uh, called Monash the Outsider, who won a war, which was hideously in contention when the book came out in 2004, and 14 years later, people are beginning to go, hmm, and get it, get what I was saying, the extra research I'd done on the on the proposition. And then another book that's come out in the last year called Monash and Chevelle, and Chevelle is Harry Chevelle, who was the commander of the Anzac force in the desert Mount of Column in the Middle East in World War I, and they were also dominant. I've also done Chevelle's biography, which came under a book called The Australian Light Horse. So these are big fat tomes, those three, and of, and then I've done a couple of uh, animal books, Bill the Bastard, who was the, in my opinion, the most outstanding war horse of the entire war, and some of your listeners will think of the movie, well, that was fiction. This is non-fiction about a massive horse um, from Australia that was did some amazing things during World War One with his trooper rider, Michael Shanahan. And then I've done Hurry the War Dog, which is uh, an amazing tale also about a, a rogue soldier who um, was a dog handler and whispered this wonderful dog that he met in the Libyan desert. And um, that's about it, I think. And I've done also from World War Two. So the latter book um, on the dog is World War Two, and the other two books I've done in World War Two are the Changi Brownlow, which is set on the Thai Burma Railway. All these are non-fiction, by the way. There's no fiction involved. And uh, the big one I did on World War Two, which no one has tackled yet, and that is the entire Australian operation in the Pacific War. In World War Two, when I say entire, most people have tucked in the Americans uh, to pad it out. I didn't do that. I had obviously had the American connection in it, but I wanted to look at what we did in World War Two, 
what the threat was, real or otherwise, from the Japanese and what was like on the home front. So that was, I think, unique in our history in terms of approaching it. And um, that's it. That's the six-odd books I've done. And where did the interest... Sorry, where did the interest in military history come from for you? Yes, I just want to add another one that's just current, which is Anzac Sniper, about the man who created Legacy, that's Stan Savage, who is our most outstanding soldier over two wars. He started as a sniper ended up number two to blame me in World War II. But to answer your question, um, I sort of wanted to do Monash because I f- felt he'd been grossly underdone. Uh, there was a book came out in the 1970s and, by an Englishman who didn't have access to the files, and it was quite a good narrative, but it didn't have access to his massive archive. It's the second biggest archive in the uh, National Library in Canberra. And I had access to that, so... Uh, we're talking about 75,000 letters, massive diaries, I mean, amazing archive. So I thought, I've got to have a crack at this man. I wasn't equipped. I wanted to do it in 1980, but I didn't feel... I'd only had a few books, uh, actually one book on the board at that stage, and I wasn't equipped to do it for another 20-odd years. Uh, And now I've done 17 biographies, so I'm sort of equipped, you might say. You can make the call on how good they are, but I'm equipped in terms of tackling biography. So he was the number one Australian from what my father had said. I did ask my father when I was very young, who are the three great Australians? I had to write an essay at school. He said in order, straight off the bat, he said John Monash, Don Bradman and Weary Dunlop. And I said, well, I don't know about Dunlop. I don't know about, uh, I don't know about Monash. He said, go into your school library. You'll find something. There was nothing. Uh, Dunlop, there was very little on as well, and uh, that was difficult for the essay. I mainly did it on Bradman, I remember. So that's where the interest came, and um, I guess you could say it was that moment at 13 when I couldn't find anything, anything on him, and the old man who'd been in World War II said he is the greatest Australian who ever lived, and I, there was nothing on him, absolutely zero, in the school library and other libraries. So that, that kicked me off. And, and the title of that book was Monash, the Outsider Who Won a War. Exactly. Why that title? Yes, well, because he was an outsider. He was a German Jew, um, which was, um, well, very little was understood by the Anglo community about anything that wasn't, you know, in the white Anglo community. And here he was, more Australian in essence than anyone at that time. In fact, he would fit much better in today's time because he didn't have the allegiance to the mother country that other people had, in the sense that uh, he was, you know, his parents were born in Germany. He had an amazing allegiance to this country and its development. And I, I remember reading lots of letters to rel- of his relatives to him and his correspondence, and him saying, "Look, I'm in the best country on the planet, and I owe a debt of gratitude because of the education and opportunities I'm getting." And that was sort of as a 17-year-old, and, and quite incredibly mature for. Um, one that young and he made it very clear and of course he did pay back that debt of gratitude by his performance in World War One. so the German uh, the Jew bit was difficult for him sort of the German bit was worse for him because uh, you know they spoke German in the home because both his parents were German and and so forth he had two sisters uh, of course he didn't speak German in the streets but he was very fluent in it at, uni- at school and university so he was looked upon as a bit of an oddball. Then we're fighting World War One against Germans. 
Uh, the question was, would he have allegiance to Australia? And this was quite vital at that point. And of course, those making the questions, either for nefarious reasons or just ignorance, were, didn't have my information that he was dead set pro-Australian and didn't care about the Prussian background at all. You know, that, that wasn't important to him, but he wanted to fight against them. He got a white feather in the post, by the way. This just sort of signifies him enormously during the Boer War. And the aides rang him up and said, well, you've been sent a white feather. We know from uh, the parliamentarian that sent it to you. Uh, why aren't you going to the Boer War? And he was 34 at that stage. He'd been a militia, in the militia for quite a long time, since university days, say about 13, 14, 15 years. And he said, that is British Empire maintenance. I'm not into British Empire maintenance. And, of course, that was a profound statement in those days because everyone was a, had an allegiance to the, the British Empire. But when it came to fighting the Germans, he knew them inside out. I would back myself in saying that he knew the German mentality better than anyone outside Germany on the planet. He spoke the language. He was an engineer. He was a gunner. Um, he was a magnificent lawyer. He put up 120 bridges around the country, so he was a construction engineer, bridges mainly. Um, and w during the war, sorry, before the war, he was sending over letters in German to the big manufacturers like Krupp, wanting to know what they were doing about their armaments. And you'd think, oh, that's not going to work. Um, they're going to disclose anything to some German-speaking Australian. And they wrote back to him and told him everything he wanted to know mm. And he ended up in intelligence before the war, by the way, so military intelligence. So he had a tremendous speed. Now, what Krupp was saying to him, the wonderful one letter that came back to him was, um, are you interested in buying anything? You're in construction. Do you want, does your government want any artillery or anything? This is probably five, eight years before the war. And they're saying, we sell to 50 countries around the world, said the Krupp manager, the big German company. He said, we even sell to our own, company, our own uh, government bit of a joke, you know. Mm. So Monash was on top of everything German, the culture, the background, the Prussian history and the military. And he knew that a military dictatorship would emerge as it did in the 1870s in the fight against the French, uh, which the Germans effectively won. Uh, and he knew that that would emerge again as it did. So without blustering or saying anything, he wasn't thinking about empire. He was thinking about defeating a military dictatorship and preserving democracy. And he wrote about this quietly to others and he didn't want to make any noise, but by the middle of the war, he was expounding this position, which is exactly what it ended up. I mean, it ended up, if we'd lost that, we, our, we would have been taken over by the Germans because they were wanting our magnificent mineral developments and the Canadians. Mm. And Monash knew this. There's no doubt, though, the Germans weren't in the Pacific and... New Guinea on R&R, &R. they were there to set up a chance to take Australia and had they won, had they just won in France, they would have said to the Brits, well, we won't take the UK, we'll just take your dominions, as they said they would do if the British did not come into France to fight. We will just take the French dominions if you stay out of it. And of course, no one trusted them. They were a military dictatorship by 1916, really, effectively. And so Monash was dead against it. He was going to go to war at 50, which is pretty old in anyone's terms, and especially in that era. What about his accomplishments during the war? Well, second to none. I mean, 
You know, I mean, he, when he got hold of it, Gallipoli, he was sort of stalemate in his mind because he didn't have the power. Uh, he had no say in the battles except to participate at the British, at the behest of the British. So his record was good in the eyes of those who were going to make the big decisions about what was going to happen on the Western Front. So the Brits thought he was pretty good. He didn't argue the toss with them. He did it a few times, told them which way was up because of their inane battle command attitude to having men slaughtered on the front line. He did take a stand there, but realised that if he took too much of a stand, he'd be out. And the threat to Chevelle, who was also there, who did um, complain bitterly about what was happening, uh, and it was just he was very lucky to be in the war after Gallipoli because um, Sir Ian Hamilton wanted Chevelle out, but they wanted Monash in, and he got over to the Western Front, as that's where he began to have an enormous impact very early. He got in charge of Australia's 3rd Division, so the first two went to Gallipoli, the third one arrives in the UK to be trained, Monash is given command of it, and as soon as they went into battle in 17, they had an enormous impact. They were the first Australian contingent to win, and that's a division of 30,000 men, to win a major battle, and that was at Messines Ridge at Ypres, then they won another one at Broodside Ridge, which is very close. And by the way, when you say ridge, they're about four foot high. I don't, I, when I got there, I got a bit of shock. So Passchendaele was the one next to that. So they're not really ridges. They're just areas, if you like. But anyway, they, he won two major battles. When the British command said, you can't take that, you know, we have a problem. And Monash said, I'll solve the problem. And he did very quickly with those two battle areas, which were uh, seen to be you know, not been able to be taken by the British until that point. So he had a terrific impact there. Uh, of course, Passchendaele was a total failure and that, and, and he complained and went to the big Hague, to you know, Douglas Hague, the field marshal, and said, you should not do this. There's no point in it. And he was overruled. He got one extra day's leave for the Australians before they went into a quagmire, torrential rain, and we lost 5,000 in a day. And so mm. the New Zealanders, uh, hideous numbers going down in swamps and things. And Monash was just, you know, you read the letters when you're doing the research, you think he's going to give it up. Now, obviously, I knew he didn't give it up. But when you're reading his attitude and, and how he felt on the days that were happening, not in revision, not in edited articles, handwritten letters to his wife and others saying this is a monstrous uh, and saying he's going to hang on for the sake of his men because it would be even worse if someone else had their command, and of course he did get in a position. Now, his big moment really came after Passchendaele and into the new year of 1918, uh, when the Germans attacked in March on a 50-kilometre front and they belted in 70 kilometres, and that was with uh, equivalent to, well, it was 50 divisions, so you're looking at maybe a million and a half men. And they'd taken... They'd, destroyed one army, the 5th Army, the British Army, and they dislocated, totally disconnected the 2nd Army, the 2nd Army, and then Monash's 3rd Division and Australian 4th Division, led by a guy called uh, Sinclair McGlagan, uh, the 60,000 men were laid across the line of the Germans coming through, and they stopped the German advance. Dead stop. Mm. Stopped it on the Somme. And that was the moment the British realised they're going to allow an Australian army to form. Remember, we were five divisions all disparately placed 
on the Western Front under British command, uh, if we, an army was to be formed, it had to be Monash because he was so dominant as a commander and a winner. Everyone realised this man was just an expert at the military and his psychology, everything was just about right. So they made him a month or so after that stopping of the German force. You know, they got in 70 kilometres, so the stopping is, is you know, debatable, but I mean, at least we didn't lose, and that was because Monash formed that mighty, mighty force across. He was made commander-in-chief of the first AIF in May 1918, and then this was the beginning of the big swing because he then had charge of 166,000 diggers, and you'll see the figure 208,000 used that were under his command. That was because other armies from time to time, we're talking the French, the British, uh, the Americans wanted to park their armies with Monash's force because they knew about Monash's skills, mm. Canadians also. So from time to time, you'd have a division or a, uh, a brigade park with Monash. So it was always under his command about 200. Now, 200,000 was by far the biggest single army corps on the Western Front. This is where uh, Australian historians who don't do their homework don't comprehend the impact. All this rubbish over the years, the decades, about we were fighting above our weight. At that critical moment in history, we were the weight because we had a very powerful, experienced army come all the way from Gallipoli, some of them. They were warriors. For all the attendant problems with that term, they were still an incredible killing machine, and that's putting it really crudely, but they were under Monash, and he was the greatest general. Everyone who was anyone acknowledged it at the time and in the few years after the war. It's only been lightweight revisionists who tried to change the narrative because it suited their their national opinion. For example, the British have changed the narrative. They've tried. They haven't done a very good job because there was no one near Monash, uh, anywhere near him. So that you put that combination of the best general by a long chalk and the most experienced army force, and then you understand why they sighed through the Germans from July in a 100-day blitzkrieg right through 39 divisions. That's about a million men, and they liberated 116 French towns. Uh, every, a lot of people in the audience will know what it's like to go to northern France and check out what happened in, those, in that period, and you'll find the French are very gently... Um, appreciative of Australians even a hundred years later, and mm. there would be there would not be anyone alive from that period. There had to be a hundred and ten or twenty, but the generations knew what had happened, and Australians get a great welcome when they go there. It's it's subtle, it's it's but it's there, and that's the result of what Monash and that armed force did at the end of the war. And of course, Monash was in the news earlier this year in terms of a campaign to have him posthumously promoted to field marshal and that wasn't successful. Yep. What, what are your thoughts on yep. that? Yeah, well, it's only the complete ignorance of the former Prime Minister and others. I don't have to go, it's Turnbull. Uh, I don't have to go into, I've met and spoken to a lot of them. I'm talking about the leaders in this country and I know where they stand on Monash. And I could give it chapter and verse if you wanted. Obviously, John Howard understands it. Tim Fisher, who promoted this whole idea of the field marshal, they get it. If you comprehend what I'm talking about now and what was achieved, 
you wouldn't have a second thought. It's when they don't do their homework, two arguments come up. One is protocol. This is total rubbish. Uh, it is in the purvey of the Prime Minister to turn around and say, he's a field marshal. Mm. Bang. Legislate it. And the other argument is floodgates, which is again showing complete ignorance of what happened. There is no one like Monash and Harry Chevelle in the Middle East from World War One. He's number two, but let's look at Monash first. There's no one like Monash. So floodgates, you know, what they're saying is, oh, Joe Bloggs was a sergeant. He should have been an officer and we want it. It wouldn't happen because no one achieved what Monash did. When you are responsible, the key individual battle commander for winning and ending the biggest war in history till that time, and certainly, you know, the biggest battles were in that hideous period, 16 to 18. Uh, there's no one in in comparison. And when you look, and I've parred this down, I've come from every angle, David, on this. If you look at the the guys that got the field marshal, the fifth pip, amongst the Brits, nowhere near. They all got out of the way with Monash, literally got out of his way because he had that strength and articulation, determination, enormous planning skills. And there's only one that I think deserved it. It wasn't in Monash's class, and that's Plumer, General Plumer, who did ask Monash's advice on numerous occasions. The rest of them, you can bunch up, and that's what I'm saying. We, he didn't get one because the Brits are not, and Billy Hughes didn't like him at all, didn't want him, feared him, because if he stood for Parliament, Monash would have definitely been... Uh, elected any seat in the country, I mean any seat in the country, and would have then been made Prime Minister. So Hughes made sure he didn't get back to Australia by giving him the job of repatriation of all the diggers until the end of 1919 when he had a federal election. So Monash was out, and others tried to get him in again in the 20s. He said, no, I'm, in, I'm doing something else now. I'm building the, yes, the State Electricity Commission from nothing in Australia, yep. in Melbourne. Mm. So... Uh, he, was stopped, he was thwarted from becoming uh, a politician and that was just Billy Hughes realising this was uh, a far greater individual than he would ever be. We're now two days away from the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. How will yep. commemoration or remembrance of war change after 1918 and the, and the 100th anniversary, do you think? Well, it's not going to be a one-shot wonder, I can tell you, because I'm not alone uh, amongst historians and authors who are looking at this. Now, I've just got to say here, I have access, and others who want to do it, to 100 times the information that any historian up until, say, the 1990s had. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean the British archives, which were not open. I mean the German archives. We have reciprocity from World War One, not World War Two, they're hiding the Hitler files, but we have reciprocity with, with the Germans. We can get in the Canadian files, the American files, the French files. We couldn't do it up until, you know, twenty or thirty years ago. And it takes time. It took me three years to assemble all the information and write the book and I'm I've it's one I've written fourteen books since the Monash biography, but I'm hanging on to that and doing extra research all the time, literally all the time. You know, once a week something will come in to me that, that adds to my comprehension of it. Um, so we have, as I say, and it's a royal we, I'm not alone, uh, 100 times information. I mean, you think of the, the CEW Bean. He didn't, the Australian War Memorial did not start until 1934. Um, and he was the single voice about what happened on the Western Front. 
he disliked Monash because he hated Jews and he hated the Germans and so forth. A good man being on many fronts, a courageous soldier, took on an enormous task as someone who was not gifted as a writer. Um, but he just didn't like Monash and he wanted to keep him right out of contention as the most important individual of that war. But we're now learning um, how what an impact he had and the diggers with him. So what's going to happen, to answer your question, is it isn't going to end in 1918. I might bow out now. I've done an enormous amount. But others will follow. And over the next decade and 20 years, you'll see a lot more information and uh, analysis on what, what really happened. Mm. Now, you know, for example, Haig, I couldn't understand why Monash was effectively a, war, a, a rogue warlord to put it in dramatic terms, that he was effectively at the end of the war. What I mean by that is he could do anything he wanted. He was telling his superior in the 4th Army, that was a Brit, Rawlinson, to get out of the way. Go back to England if you don't agree with what I'm about to do. Mm. Um, and why was he able to do that? Well, we know the king, and I had that in the biography, had, had his back and thought he was the greatest soldier he'd met on the Western Front, the greatest battle commander. But he wasn't on the front line. He had influence. If the king liked you, you got on. There was really severe patronage in those days. Haig had his position because of the king. No one wanted Haig to be commander-in-chief. But what I couldn't work out was how did Monash have that power at that moment? In other words, telling um, Pershing, the head of all American forces, I want 50,000 Americans and getting them. How did that happen? No other general in history had commanded the Americans apart from Monash foreigner that I'm talking about, not mm. American. And the reason is Haig was in love with him. I don't mean in a sexual sense, of course. I mean bromance. He saw, after the king had alerted him, how brilliant Monash was and let him loose. So whenever the other commanders were annoyed at Monash wanting to do something, Monash just said, we'll talk to Haig about it. And Haig backed Monash every single time. There were a couple of times, I say every single time, I have to qualify that to a couple of moments. He didn't get exactly what he wanted, but once a battle started, then he got what he wanted. The classic is Amiens, the biggest, most important battle of that period, where he, with his battle plan, he smashed two German armies in 48 hours, with the Canadians in support on his right flank. Now, this is an example of the power. This is it. He told Haig he did not want the French on his right flank. There were three armies lined up on the Allied side, British conscripts who were next to useless in a major battle. I mean, guys that had 16 to 18-year-olds, shallow-chested guys from Birmingham who'd never been near a gun, let alone war, who were told they were going to take a particular ridge. It happened to be uh, one that Monash thought they couldn't take. Now, the Brits said, no, they've got to stay in the line in that position. They're going to take Chipperley's Spur. Monash gave up on that, but he said, look, I don't want the French on my right flank. They're going to fall back. I want them to support me when I go forward with uh, my army. And he had all 166,000 lined up. He had 60-odd uh, of them in reserve. And he had another 30 or 40,000 Americans under his command as well at that point. So there he is with a massive army. He said, I do not want the French on my right flank. Um, and he went to Haig and Haig said, well, uh, who are you going to put there? And he said, I want the Canadians. And Haig said, they have not fought under the British flag since Passchendaele in November 1917, nine months earlier. And Monash said, don't worry, I'll fix it. He went to Arthur Curry, 
who would not fight on the British flag because of what had happened at Passchendaele. He'd lost so many men uh, in what was agreed by everyone. It was an absolutely futile engagement at Passchendaele. And he said to Arthur Curry, this is not a British battle. This is a Dominion battle. Mm. You and I, with our two armies, will take on those Germans. Uh, forget the French, the, the, sorry, the, um, the British on my left flank. Be, they won't be able to do anything. It'll be our fight. And, uh, you know, Arthur Curry, who, had, like all of them, had enormous admiration for Monash, a little light went above his head and he said, I'm in. And Monash said, I've got the battle plan. You tell me what you want in addition or in changes. They'll be in. And that's how that battle was fought. 48 hours. Now, that was the key battle of the entire war. And it was in 1918. Because had the Germans got through Armia, it's a rail junction, 120 kilometres north of Paris. The French were going to fall back. That's why they didn't want to support Monash to Paris, to defend Paris. And as Monash said to Curry, and Curry got it very quickly, if the French fall back, they will not fight over Paris. They'll capitulate. They don't want to fight. They didn't want to fight in 1871. He knew his history against the Germans. They gave up then too, when it was on the outskirts of Paris. And he said, they'll capitulate again because they don't want Paris to be sacked and burned and blown up by you know, the big guns. Mm. And so Arthur uh, was in. But really what Monash was saying is what happened in, uh, with, with Dunkirk in World War II. Once the French were out, we can't fight on French soil against another country. It's not our preserve, especially if they're Vichy French, in other words, under German command. Now, that would have been the case in World War I had the Germans got through Army R. That's why that battle was the paramount battle of the whole conflict. You can talk about this one and that one and that one. It is the dominant battle. And, of course, they smashed those two armies. Now, the figures are alarming. And, uh, you know, look away now if you don't want to hear what Monash did to the Germans. On the 8th of August, 1918, 28,000 Germans were killed. 75,000 were wounded, never to fight in war again. 103,000 Germans down in 24 hours. That's why the Germans said after that battle, we cannot now win the war, we can only defend. And they got the shock of their lives, and then they got a double shock when they realised that they were the... Um, British Allied forces were not going to push on east and finish it. Mm. And that was because the high command with Haig and Rawlinson and others, even though they had Monash saying, if we push on now, we'll finish it, they were saying, no, you've done a wonderful job, John. Park your army southeast uh, for a while, have a rest. And Monash, exhausted as he was and troops exhausted, he knew that in, in 72 hours it'll be over. By the middle of August, it would have definitely been over. They would have, the Germans said it. I mean, all the, all the commentary from Ludendorff down, uh, the best line was from Heinz Guderian, the German who commanded all Hitler's blitzkrieg forces in World War II. He said they had, that's the British, meaning the Australians and the Canadians, had their boot on our throat and they took it off. Mm. And that was because they just did not grasp and it was, you know, it, for the Brits to think there's been an absolute breakthrough, they hadn't had one, you know, we get a kilometre here, half a kilometre there, we're pushed back 70 kilometres, stalemate, small victory, defeat. Suddenly, there's an enormous smash through, a counter-attack by Monash, and they just couldn't grasp what had happened. Remember the high command 
had experienced what had happened on the Somme with tens of thousands dying in weeks and a million men overall probably, we, we don't know the figure, no one knows the true figure. They still haven't found a lot of the bodies from 1916. So they did not want to go through that again. They would have been out. They would have been tossed out. There'd be no way that the king or anyone else could defend those high commands. So they were squeamish about the counterattack, whereas Monash had picked the time to do it, and he was ready. And he asked for 550 tanks, and he got them. After the little battle of Mel where he showed what tanks could do, but that was only 45. It was a piddling battle of Mel, and that success, though, allowed him to argue the case. And he got 550 tanks. Now, to put that in perspective, the head of his, normally his boss, Rawlinson, was trying to disband the tank units to get the tank uh, personnel out of the tank and put them on the front line. There would be another 3,000 men on the front line, more fodder, yeah. more cannon fodder. And Monash said, no, the tank has improved. I want to use them. He took his staff down. He took 50 diggers down. They worked with the tank and they decided on a vote, with Monash in command, of course, they decided they would run with the tank. And, of course, that was what obliterated those two German armies in that time. And certainly uh, in terms of a combined arm, arms approach to, to, to warfare, he was one of the, uh, the first well, generals no who deployed. Mm. No, no one in his league at that time. Absolutely mm. no one. You can go through all the archives. All, I mean, you know, he thought it was him. He said, I don't go into battle to lose. I go in to win. It is like building a massive bridge that stays up. He got all the accoutrements to build bridges. He got all the accoutrements to win war. He had the artillery in place. He had now, he asked, get this, he asked for 800 planes above him, not just for reconnaissance and intelligence, but to drop bombs on the second reserve army that he was about to attack and obliterate. And he said, I only want Australian pilots in those planes because he reckoned, and lots of others, including Lawrence of Arabia, said that our pilots were the best because they were daredevil, courageous, and they were instinctively good with machines. They knew what to do. They their hands-on mentality. And that was an absolute fact at that time, and he got those 800 planes. So another 1,500 planes to his uh, right flank above where the Canadians were buzzing around and where the French were behind them in the south. But the ones that were effective in that battle were under his power. Now, he had a massive artillery, he had machine guns. He was the first general, again, this is history, first general to use machine guns as forward manoeuvre, in forward manoeuvres. In other words, take them forward, not just in defensive roles. And he had to argue the case with uh, all the other generals in the Australian Army when he wasn't in charge. He won the case because he went on a course during the war with... Uh, under officers and learnt more everything about they wanted to know about machine guns and the, machine, the the developments and so forth and he was the first one to use them so they were an offensive weapon under Monash never before used that way uh, on the scale he was using them at all so you can see that he was a military genius and he had a greater grasp of everything remember he was a gunner he was trained in the artillery mm. so he had enormous advantages over everyone and got up a few noses, not because he was arrogant, but because he would intervene and say, no, this is what should be done. This is what will happen. 
this is why I want planes. This is why I want 550 tanks. And no one was able to stand up and say, well, I don't think that'll work because mm. it had worked and it was working. So for you, what's the next book? <laughs> I've just had one come out called Anzac Sniper uh, about um, the man who began Legacy, Stan Savage, who was, I think, our most outstanding soldier over the two wars, began as a sniper and ended up... Um, uh, as number two to blame me. So he started as a sniper on Gallipoli in World War One, and ended up effectively number two to blame me in the Second War. You know, so he was he was running two corps. There were only two uh, corps, and he was running the second as commander in chief. So or commander of that particular corps. Uh, the next one um, I don't want to discuss at the moment. There'll actually be a, a fiction uh, that'll come out in June. I work in the contemporary with fiction because. Uh, it's much easier to, to get published in the sense that you don't have any defamation problems when you're dealing with issues. I mean, I've dealt, dealt with the drugs uh, movement in Southeast Asia, uh, the warlords from Mexico and all that stuff. Now, you can't, you just publisher won't touch it. You're, you're going to get tremendous pushback for, uh, by lawyers and things. So to get things out quickly in a contemporary form, uh, fiction is is the way I do it, so that'll be June next year. That'll be published. It's a third in a series called The Assassin. I've done one called The Honourable Assassin, one called The Assassin on the Bangkok Express, Express yeah. and the third one is called The Assassin and the Shaman. Uh, and the Shaman, which is a man who deals in evil and good spirits, uh, is an inventor and a Tasmanian oil explorer as well. A very oddball, um, very religious character who. Um, uh, nevertheless, is a, a, an inventive genius. So uh, that's dealing with that and the opposition to him in that book from, uh, let's say, companies that don't want his inventions to go ahead. Mm. And, all uh, based on fact. And any plans for another military-related book, military uh, not history? Not at this stage because I'm a bit militaried out with, mm. I think, eight or nine on the board. That doesn't mean... I mean, for example, there's... Um, Mad Dog Murray, the, the most highly decorated soldier of World War One, he's worthy. Nothing of any substance has been done on him. Um, he's won. There are a couple of it that I think about, but I'm just going to stand back a little bit. I'm doing one on sport coming out next year. Um, I'm having The Fifth Man, a book on espionage, republished in 2020, in May 2020, because the... Uh, well, Soviet intelligence, if you like, and Russian intelligence in the contemporary era have now um, effectively, to paraphrase it, agreed with what I said about who was the fifth man in the Cambridge ring. And it's only come out of archives that have been buried and hidden for a long time, 50 years, that this verification has come up about me saying that the fifth man was a certain character, which I've, was published in 94, and 24 years later, mm. I have verification 100%. And I was certain at the time, but no one else, not no one else, but others were uh, a bit dubious. But my research is um, as strong as it can be, and uh, you know, I go all out, and I was correct about that. It's now being verified. So that's coming out. It'll be revamped a bit. The publisher wants it to, to look like a book from this era, not, not uh, in 94. Yeah. And where so can people? Wow, where can people go to find out more about your books? 
Well, uh, look, uh, if they get the names, uh, they can go. Well, they can go to my website, which is um, rollandperryauthor.com, or they can just look up my name, and they'll get. You know, there's there were at one stage 14 million entries. I, I seem to have trimmed it back to three or four now. So, when you do 30 odd books, David, it's a lot of criticism, a lot of comment, a lot of publishers puff on them. Um, and I've done lots of articles and stuff as well and films, so uh, that's why there's so many entries. So it's not hard to find what I've done. Um, the website's probably the best, rollandperryauthor.com, is probably the best because um, I've got all the books listed there, and if they're interested, they can take them up. You know, uh, So I appreciate your giving me that time. No, look, and really appreciate a fascinating insight into uh, certainly for Monash and, and your books, and thank you so much for your time today. Roland's website is www.rolandperry.com.au. You can find the link on our Facebook page. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback. That email again is info at thanksforyourservice.net or leave a comment on our Facebook page. And if you're listening to us via iTunes, please leave a review. If you're interested in sponsorship or support of this podcast, head to our website or email us. You can also support us via Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com. Thanks for your service. The version of the last post is courtesy of Rachel Bostock. You can find links to her music on our website and Facebook page. Thanks for listening. <laughs>